Sometimes as Christians, I think most of you know this, we can become discouraged. Um, as much as we are striving and so desire to be like Christ, we often find ourselves failing, falling back into this, those same old sinful temptations. Oftentimes our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes uh, really are more like a lost world around us than really a Savior who's within us. Um, our, our marriages, which really God has given to us to be able to reflect the glory and mercy of God and the grace of God, oftentimes reflects just the opposite of that. And there's, you look around in our culture and our world, and it seems to be increasingly more godless day after day after day. Sometimes, I guess my point is, is sometimes it feels as though we're not winning. Sometimes it feels like we're losing. Uh, sometimes it feels as though instead of really experiencing a, a ton of victories, we're really experiencing far more defeats. In fact, it seems sometimes if you, if you look, whether it's in your own life or the world around, it seems almost like the enemy is getting a foot up. It, it, almost as though he's advancing, Satan is advancing, and it's, 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 two, it's one step forward, and for us, sometimes it's two steps back. If you find yourself there, or if you've ever found yourself there being discouraged, wondering where that victory is, uh, struggling against sin, wanting to be more like Christ, wanting to see things as the way that God had ultimately intended for them to be able to be, if you found yourself in that place, and this message is for you, and I pray that it's a great encouragement to all of us. See, there's one main point to this whole text of Scripture. A lot of it, I just have to kind of really explain so that you know what's going on. But the overarching point is pretty simple, but I think it's great. Uh, I'm going to use, there's one major point, but I'm going to give you three points because I'm a Southern Baptist preacher. And so, so I'm going to give you three points, but they're not really the main point. They're just points that are going to help us to be able to work through the text to make sense of it. But here's the overarching point driving this whole story today is that Jesus wins as well as all who are with him. Jesus wins as well as all who are with him. Let's begin to look, pick up in verse 14. Here's the first thing that we see. We see a miracle in its meaning. We see a miracle happen, and then we see the meaning of it. Look at verse 14. He says, now he was casting out a demon uh, that was mute. When, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and people marveled. Now we see once again that Jesus has, in the book of Luke, absolute authority and power over demonic forces. We've seen it time and time again. In chapter 9, we saw him, or excuse me, chapter 8, we saw him deliver a, a, a man from a legion of demons in the area of the Gerasenes. One chapter later, in chapter 9, he delivers a young boy from a demon. And now in chapter 11, we see him doing it once again. Now, what's interesting here is every time we see somebody in the book of Luke who has a demon, they always kind of, it's always connected to some kind of physical ailment. Uh, for example, the uh, one, one particular gen the man with a legion of demons, who had a legion of demons, he was suffering from fits of violence and uh, against other people. In chapter 8, young, young boy who was possessed with a demon, he was suffering from seizures. And this man who was possessed by a demon was mute, meaning he was unable to speak. Now, this is suggesting that every time you have a physical ailment, that it's a demon. Or that if you're sick today, that you, have a, you are possessed by a demon. That would be unfortunate, but most unlikely. Really, what it teaches us, however, the significance is it teaches us something about our enemy. Our enemy has come for the purpose of breaking things. He wants his people, God's people, to be broken. 
That's the whole point of his kingdom. His kingdom is he, he hates mankind. Why? Because humanity was created in the image of God, and he hates that image. The whole purpose and drive behind the kingdom of Satan is to destroy that image. And when Jesus Christ comes back, it's for him to be able to fix and to restore the image of God in us once again. That's the whole point. Satan has his nasty hand on everything. Sin has come. He wants everything to be destroyed. You and I, our relationships, our physical bodies, uh, our love for God, our hearts to be broken. And Jesus comes. And what we find in this passage is that he has the power to take whatever it is that is broken in you and me and in this world and make it whole again. That's the significance of the kingdom of God who is coming. My kids, I've got uh, six of them. Some of you have more, some of you have less, but let's be honest, it ain't easy how many kids, however many kids you have. It's hard, and every once in a while, the kids would come, and they would have a toy, and it would be broken. I don't think most of the time they broke it because it would be their favorite toy. I know one of our, my daughters, I love this so much, she had a little Winnie the Pooh uh, stuffed animal, and it was just the head, and it had kind of like this blanket, and she would carry it everywhere. For years and years, she carried it until the head fell off, and then she just carried it around the head. And so, little disturbing, but it, it was, it, it was it, she loved this thing. And so sometimes when the kids, it was their favorite toy, they would come and they would be heartbroken, and they would say, they, they'd be like, Dad, you know, my, 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 toy is, is broken. And I would say, I'm so sorry. That is so difficult. So, so bad. And, but, but one of our daughters, um, really the youngest, she kind of took this kind of breaking of toys a little bit different. Uh, she would bring a, a, a broken toy and, and she would tell mom, she'd say, mom, I just broke my toy. And, and Larissa again, because of all of her other kids would be like, we're so sorry. We're, we're so, so sorry about that. I know that that's difficult when you lose something like that. And, and she would say, no, it's okay. When dad gets home, he'll fix it. It's okay. So she wasn't really all that sad. So I would come home and this first thing is she would say, dad, my toy is broken. Here it is. Can you fix it? And I would sit there and say, of course, baby, you just go off to your room. Daddy will fix it. He fixes and makes everything right. So she goes off into the room and then I turn to my wife and I go, honey, you know, I can't fix this. Can you fix this for me? And so I hand it over to her. She gets out her toolbox and she fixes whatever it is. She hands it back to me. I go back into her room and I go, look, daddy has fixed it for you. Right? And then daddy gets all the praise. And everything. And so the idea there is, is she, she didn't mourn like some of the other children because she knew that that wasn't the final say. She knew she had a father that could take whatever was broken and to be able to fix it. And beloved, I'm telling you, whatever your heart is broken, whatever is broken in your relationships, whatever is broken in your life, this passage is set to show you that whatever the world have undone, he can fix and restore once again. That's the point of this. And so what we find is we find that there are some responses. How do you respond to a truth like that? Well, we see, some, we see three different responses here in the text. Notice it says, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Now, what this is telling us is that everybody who was there that day, whether they believed it or not, recognized, believed that this was an authentic miracle. No, nobody was debating that. Nobody was arguing that. It was a man who couldn't speak, and now he's able to speak. The debate came with how in the world did Jesus do it? In other words, where did he get such power? And so some of them actually believe that he was from God. It, uh, Luke doesn't tell us that people believe, but we assume that they did in the context of which it's written. That some saw this and they just put two and two together. The most obvious uh, conclusion is 
Jesus casts out a demon. Only person that has power over demons is God. Jesus must be from God. That should have been the logical conclusion. So there were some that most likely believed, but then there were those that fell underneath the unbelief side. Some, instead of believing, they were hostile towards Christ. Look at verse 15. It says, but some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, Beelzebul was actually an ancient Canaanite god. And uh, basically, when you try to look at the different names, sometimes it's spelled Beelzebub, sometimes it's Beelzebul. And, and primarily, it means the same thing. Sometimes it means really the lord of the domain. Other times it means the lord of the flies. And other times it means the lord of dung. Now, I'm not really sure why you would want to worship the, the lord of dung, but the Canaanites did. And so this is, this is what happens over a period of time. The Jewish people actually took the name and began to ascribe it and use it for a term for uh, high-ranking demons. And then eventually, it was used as a synonym for Satan himself. So when they're saying that Jesus did this by the power of Beelzebub, this is strong blasphemy. This is, in essence, aligning Jesus with Satan and them telling them that he is of the devil and he does this by the power of the devil, which means Jesus Christ is evil, that he's wicked. That's what they're saying right in front of them here at this time. Now, in our culture, in our southern culture, people aren't usually this bold, are they? I mean, we don't see people walking around and going, down with Jesus. And they don't have their anti-Jesus, like circle, name with circle, and a little mark through it saying, oh, we just, we hate Jesus. It's usually not that bold, but beloved, it is certainly bold, the opposition. The boldness or the opposition to Christ and the hostility towards Christ is evidence as the world comes up against his church. Now, I understand that most uh, lost people who are harsh towards the church will say, I have got nothing to do with your, and, and no problem with Jesus. Jesus was a good guy. I could probably hang out with him, maybe grab a coffee, but it's God's people that I can't stand. They're the ones that I can't stand. And beloved, please understand that throughout the history, we as the church will admit that we have blown in many major ways throughout church history over 2,000 years. However, we would also admit that because we've blown it, that's why we need Jesus Christ. We need him. We need his grace. We don't think that we're good or righteous with, within ourselves. We can only be made right before God through the, the righteous grace and mercy of, of him. That's why we need him. However, we still, by the grace of God, still hold to the things that Jesus Christ holds to. Hold to the things that Christ finds important and tells us as important. For example, the sanctity of life. Now, I know this is a low-hanging fruit, but just follow me for a second. We believe that life, all life, is important. Do you agree with that? Which means we believe that's why we want to preserve the life within a child, or within a woman's womb. But yet when a world comes up and they ultimately say, hey, listen, you're wicked and you're uncaring for that woman and you don't care, what, what, are, they, what are they saying? What they're doing is they're not necessarily just attacking us. They are in opposition and hostility towards Jesus Christ by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created, including that little child. And so it's the same thing with marriage. We understand that marriage, when you understand a biblical view that God has given this to us, to be able to demonstrate the unbreakable bond and covenant between Christ and his church, and that we have it, and it should be between one man, and it should be between one woman, 
world stands up and says you're unloving and you're uncaring. How in the world can you deny a man who wants to marry a man and a woman who wants to marry a woman? You're tracking with me, right? And what they're doing is they come up and, they, and there's hostility towards the church. Beloved, please understand that hostility is not for the church alone. That is hostility to, 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 towards Jesus Christ. They are in essence saying Jesus is wicked. Jesus Christ is evil. And this is the response you see the glory of God? What are you going to do with Jesus? Some say that he is of the devil. It's a response of hostility. Still, there are others who believe, and then there are those who are skeptical. Look at verse 16. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So this is probably the largest group. There are some that believe. There are some that are blatantly hostile. But the majority of the people that we know in this world fall into this category. Is the category of the skeptic. These are the people that sit back and they really don't want to take a stance. They're like, well, look, we're not really against Jesus, but we're not really for him either. We're just kind of in between. We're open-minded. Why do so many people like to fall in this category? Because it's open-mindedness that is praised today. All the great intellects are open-minded. The dumb people are the people who study and come to determination and conviction of themselves. Somehow they're the dumb ones. They're the ones that are lacking uh, knowledge. And, and, if, and if you just don't believe anything and you're not sure about anything, then that shows that you are a cultural elite, an intellectual elite. And so what happens in, in this particular case is They'll come and they'll say, look, I'm not really against Jesus, but I'm not really for him. And then they may even say, but you know what? If there was enough evidence to show that what you're telling me about the Bible and that's taught in the Bible is true, then I would probably be open enough to go ahead and be certain. That's what's happening here. I would, I would agree with you. I would come to believe as well. And so they're asking for Jesus. They said, look, you showed us something, but it's not enough. You need to show us more. And I'm suggesting that most skeptics are really not sincere at all. They're insincere because it doesn't matter how much evidence you give them or how many sound arguments that you give them, they have chosen not to believe. I can't tell you how many people I have talked to who have said, hey man, I'm just not so sure about it. And I said, well, what are you not sure about? They'll ask me a question. Some I can't answer. Some I feel like I'm answering pretty well. And, uh, and I answer that particular question to them and they'll sit back and instead of sitting in there going, wow, I did not know that. Thank you for telling me. Now I believe. You know what they say? Well, I've got this other issue as well. And then they go on from one thing after another. Here's why. Because most skeptics are not honest. Most skeptics are dishonest. They've made up their mind that they're not going to believe no matter what kind of evidence they ultimately see or they ultimately demand. And so this is what the Bible says. He looks at them and, and at the same time, he just, he, he, he knows what they're thinking. Apparently they weren't having the discussion out loud, but it says in verse 17, but he knowing their thoughts, not only did he know their thoughts, but he knew their hearts. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 4, when Jesus was addressing a group of religious leaders who were constantly asking for more signs from heaven, at that point, what, what does he do? He turns to them and he, and he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. What is that? Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. See, Jesus understands that unbelief is not about seeing something. It's about hearing something. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If a person doesn't come to faith by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would never come to faith by seeing a, a miraculous things occur. It's hard to believe, but it's true. Do you remember the story in the Bible of Lazarus, the rich man and Lazarus? 
Do you remember when the rich man, uh, he, he dies, goes to hell, Lazarus, who was poor, uh, dies, and he goes to heaven? And, and, and there, the poor man is in such anguish, he calls out to Abraham to dip his finger in some water and to be able to put it on his tongue just to be able to ease his suffering. And, and Abraham denies him and says, no, I'm sorry, you had a good, good in this world, but now this is the judgment and the justice that you, that you must now live under. And so he says, well, then Elise, take Lazarus, get, allow him to go to my brothers and sisters, allow him to be raised from the dead, go back to my brothers, I have five brothers, and allow them to warn them of this place. Surely they will turn. And Abraham turns back to him and he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The, the death. The truth is, most skeptics, please, beloved, understand this, do not believe because they choose not to believe, no matter what the evidence is. The reality is, whether someone is hostile towards Christ, get this, flat out hostile towards Christ, or whether they appear to just be indifferent, they still lack the necessary faith to believe. In other words, the nice, kind, non-abrasive skeptic is still as lost as the most belligerent, hostile atheist who spends his life seeking to disprove Christianity. If you do not believe, it doesn't matter what that unbelief looks like. And that's what we have here. Now, look at the next thing. We see the arguments against the unbelieving. Jesus is going to tell them why their argument is so ridiculous. And he, and he, and he gives them two reasons. First of all, he says, your argument is illogical. Look at verse 17. He said to them, every kingdom divided against itself laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you, for, for you say that I, that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Jesus points out, first of all, that their argu argument, again, is illogical. He says, it just doesn't make any logical sense to say that a demon would take all that energy and all that time to be able to bind this man, to be able to remove his ability to be able to speak, and, and, and then all of a sudden later on come back and undo all the things that he had broken. He, he broke them. Now he's going to come back and fix them. Hey, the, the kingdom's not going to last very well. He's going to ultimately defeat himself. And this is true for everything. It's interesting because that same concept, that same idea of, of something being divided, not being able to stand, was actually quoted, many of you probably know it, from, from Abraham Lincoln in a speech that he had given in 1858. In 1858, while he was running for U.S. Senate as a Republican, he, sat, he, he came back and he said these words, famous. He says, I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. It's just true that if anything is divided, whether it be a friendship, whether it be a home, a marriage, a country, or a kingdom, if those people within that particular relationship are divided, there's no way for it to stand. It's ultimately going to fall. This is why we tell people all the time. We tell our, our children as well, look, if you're going to get married, you can't marry an unbeliever. Not only is the Bible telling you from the get-go that it is not, that it is not, it, you're, you're not to be able to do so, but, but it's not going to be able to stand. Now, I know we hear a story every once in a while. We're like, well, wait a minute. That's what I did. I married, and I was a Christian, and I married somebody, and they ended up coming to faith in Jesus Christ after I married them. No, I believe her, and they ended up coming to faith. Look, I, I say this. Praise Jesus for that. But I'm telling you straight out, you, you were in sin when you did that. That's what the Bible simply says. 
And the Bible says is that the majority, even though those come to that, and we pray for that, we pray for those that, that do are, marry, or are married to unbelievers, that they would come to faith in Jesus. Would you agree with me? But at the same exact time, we're not encouraging people to go into something that from the get-go is, stop it, it begins divided, divided. And so that's what we find here. He says, look, it's just illogical. Something that is divided among itself cannot stand. So he says, not only is it illogical, but it's inconsistent. Look at verse 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, he says, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So apparently there were some itinerant ministers that were traveling around the country, Jewish ministers that were casting out demons. At least that's what they were saying that they were doing. We actually read about them in Acts chapter 19. This is the seven sons of Sceva. Do you remember this story? Great story. Go back and read it. I don't have time to go into great detail. But basically, uh, Paul is casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. These sons, these so-called demon uh, exercisers, decide that they're going to cast out demons too. And they want to follow the same model that Peter has been using. So they go around and they said, hey, in the name of Jesus, the one that Paul preaches, we demand you demons to come out. Right? And they supposedly seven of them had this man inside of a room. And the demon responds. He says, uh, hey, uh, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? It's at that point you fall over and you die. That's, that's, that's the point of the story. And, um, and, but instead, what does the man do? He, the Bible says that he beats those seven men to the point where he strips their clothes off. They run leaving with no clothes on. Look, a pastor said this one time and it's always stuck with me. If you enter a fight with your clothes on, and you leave without them on, you know you've been beaten, right? And so, so this, is what, this is what is happening in this text. People are doing this, but here's what Jesus is suggesting. He says, your own sons, which could be their actual literal sons, or it could have been their followers. You could use it in either way. He says to him, he says, when you see them do these things, you plaster the name of God on it and say, this is of God. But the moment that I come on the scene and do it, you say it's of the devil. He says it's illogical and it's completely inconsistent. And so the enemy of God now is ultimately defeated. And so Jesus at this point, he, he now turns and he, he tells them, he says, he tells them now how he ultimately did it. And he tells him, he says, but if the, by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says the finger of God, Matthew in a parallel passage says the spirit of God, he's saying the same thing. He goes, if you look at this correctly, the only evidence, the only logical conclusion, the only honest conclusion is that it was the, by, by the power of God that this demon was cast out. And he says, and if, if this is the demon that was cast out, then you know the kingdom of God has come. Think about the good news. The good news is everything in this world is broken. Beloved, everything in the world was broken. Marriages were broken, relationships were broken, children were rebelling. Parents were unfaithful. People were killing one another. Jesus Christ comes on the scene. The new kingdom of God, this new kingdom comes, the kingdom of God that comes in. And it begins at that process to begin to fix everything that was broken. This is glorious and this is wonderful. And this is the kingdom of God that has continued to come. This is what we pray, right? When Jesus instructed, he said, pray thy will be done. You guys on earth as it is in heaven, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This is what we're praying. In all of our lives, we're seeing the kingdom come as you and I submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and what is broken now becomes fixed. 
And so Jesus then begins to give kind of a last illustration. He actually gives two. Verse 21, he says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than him attack, or attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoils. Whoever is not with me, note this, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So you've got two choices. You're either with him and you are gathered unto him or you are against him and you are scattered. The idea of scattering is being scattered in judgment. He's, those are the only two options. Do you, so do you remember what we said in the beginning? Jesus always wins. He and all those who are what? With him, with him. So how are we with him? How are we made with him? Well, in this particular illustration, Jesus is describing a wealthy landowner and he lives in a palace that cannot be breached. And the goods that this man possesses, the lost souls of men. Nobody, none of those men that are held captive can break free. They can't break free from the stronghold of sin and Satan. They can't do it. No matter how hard they try, no matter how sincere they are, no matter how much effort they begin to grant, they cannot break free. But the good news, as one author says, is praise God that there is someone who is stronger than Satan. He says, here Jesus describes the stronger one who attacks the devil's palace, overthrows his guard, strips him of his armor, and claims the goods that Satan once claimed for his own. Amen, amen, and amen. And how did he do it? On the cross. On the cross of Jesus Christ. We read in the book of Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about who we were when we were broken. When we were broken before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, this is what the enemy has done underneath the curse of sin. And he says, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses. Beloved, how wonderful it is to know that our sins today are forgiven past, present, and future. That was a part of him fixing what was ultimately broken. And then notice this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it, to the what? The cross. He disarmed the ruler and the authorities and he put them into open shame by triumphing over them in him. The reason we can say without doubt that Jesus Christ wins is because he won on the cross. The reason we can say that we now win, we who are now in him win is because we are now with him. We are his children, come to faith in Jesus Christ, placed our faith, repented of our sin and placed our faith in him. Now, he comes and he gives his last story, and, and I could pass over it and then just jump over it, but let's just look at it for a minute, verse 24. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of the person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and seeking none, it's, it, uh, none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and it brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than first. Here's what he's talking about. It's a reference back to the man who had the demon cast out. He says, this man, the demon is cast out. In other words, all the disarray and all the problems and all the ills of his life in a way has been fixed at a certain level. It seems more orderly now. And he says, but here's going to be the problem about becoming right is not just taking what is bad out, but putting good in. And he says, if this man just comes and he just wants to clean up his life, then he's in big trouble. Do you know that's how, why some people come to church? Because there's a broken marriage or a rebellious child or somebody is sick and they come to church. Why? Because they just need help. They need Jesus Christ to fix what is broken. We get that. Look, 
you don't need to feel bad for that. That's what God uses to be able to draw our attention and to draw ourselves to him. There's nothing wrong with that, but here's the key. By coming to a church and just sitting there and saying, really, morally, I just want to be a better person. I just want to be a better father. I just want to be a better husband. I just want to be a better businessman. In other words, I just want to be morally better. What he says is, hey, you may clean up and you may get some of those bad things out of you and work. Here's the problem is, if you don't have Christ in you, then that which is wicked is gonna come down upon you and it's gonna wipe you out. The only true safety against that which is wicked is to place within us the spirit of God, which is ultimately good. So today, I hope that you're not here just sitting there and saying, hey man, I just wanna clean up. I just wanna be better. What you need is this is wholesale change. This is coming to the point in repenting. Do you know why the skeptic won't repent? You come and believe this? Because it's hard to, you know why? Because it, it strikes a blow to our pride. To come to Jesus Christ and to have him indwell us, we have to come and say, God, we're sinners. We've rebelled against you. We're deserving of death. We're deserving of your judgment. I've done everything that is wrong in your sight. And the truth is, I want you to come and I can't do anything about it. I can't be good. I can't rest in my own goodness. I can't do any of that. All I could do is depend on you and what you did for me. That's saving faith. Do you understand that church? That's saving faith. And people don't want to do it. But he says, this is what is required. Cleaning up your life is not going to make you right with God and is not going to protect you from the enemy. It's only for us to repent and have Christ and his spirit dwell within us. That's the only answer. So the question is, where are you? Do you believe? Are you, in, are you in Christ? Is Christ in you? Listen, Christ won on that cross. Look, I would love to see all of that winning really be fulfilled in a greater capacity than what I see it around me and in me at this particular point. But the Bible promises it's happened. It's already, but not yet. One day he will take the entire world, everything that is upside down, everything that is broken, and he will restore it into a new heaven and a new earth with new bodies and we will glorify him in a new way in which we've never done before. Praise God, praise God, and praise God. If you're struggling this morning and you're sitting there and say, I'm broken, fortunately for you, I know someone who can fix it. Come to Christ, come to faith in him. Bring your broken heart, your troubles to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, we praise you. You are a good and awesome and wonderful God. And we just pray right now, Lord, as we take a few moments to begin to reflect, to repent of sin, God, but also to be able to just reflect on your goodness, that God, we will do so before we take the Lord's Supper. In your precious name we pray, amen.